The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning. Thank you, sir. It is truly an absolute pleasure to be with you this morning to share together in God's Word in this place, but more than just because it's this place, but because you're here. So thank you for being here this morning. In case you don't know who I am, my name is Jim Dvorak. I'm one of the, as my daughter would say, old guys. <clears throat> yeah, elders here at the Springs, and I'm happy to serve in that uh, capacity. But today I'm actually going to do some preaching, which I haven't done in a little while. So forgive me if I go on for an hour and a half or something along those lines. We're going to be continuing our summer series in the Psalms today. So open up your Bibles or tap to Psalm 14. That's where we're going to be today, Psalm 14. We'll read the text in just a moment. While you're turning there, let me remind you just briefly of the, the model that we've been using to help us step through and think through the Psalms. It's a model that was popularized by the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. Uh, and he noticed as he was reading through the, the Psalms that you could categorize the Psalms in really one of three different ways. You could categorize them, first of all, as Psalms of Orientation. These are the psalms that are where you find yourself in life, you're feeling secure. Everything is as it should be, or maybe you're looking out and everything out there doesn't look very good, but you're still secure enough to say, God's got this. That's a psalm of orientation. These are typically psalms of wisdom, of blessing, or even, we don't think about this much, but even psalms of divine retribution. God's got this, he'll take care of business. There are also psalms of disorientation, and these are primarily the psalms of lament. These are the ones that, you know, we might read at home and kind of wish that maybe we hadn't opened to that psalm. These are the psalms of complaint sometimes. They're the psalms where the psalmist is in the pit rather than under the wing of God, in the refuge of God. Something has come along and not just knocked over the apple cart, but decimated it broke it into pieces, made the apples into applesauce, and splattered it all over the world. Psalms of disorientation. But then, he noticed that there are also psalms of new orientation or reorientation. These are the happy psalms, the one, if you ask someone, what's your favorite psalm? These are the ones that people say, I like the hallelujah psalms. These are the psalms of praise and of thanksgiving. My personal favorite is Psalm 103. And what I like about Psalm 103, it begins, bless the Lord, O my soul, bless the Lord, all of my inmost being. And then he lists like five reasons why. Everything from God forgives sins to, and here's the, the reorientation language, he redeems my life from the pit. You hear it? God is doing something that moves us up out of the pit. Those are the Psalms of reorientation. The psalm we're studying today is typically categorized as a psalm of orientation. But it's got a number of peculiarities about it that we need to be aware of, and I think knowing them going into the psalm will help us to make some sense of it as we go. The first is that this psalm, although a psalm of orientation, has characteristics of lament psalms, those psalms of disorientation. So as we're reading the text, we're gonna see language like God's people are being eaten like loaves of bread by society. We're going to see language in the theme of exile, and exile would not have been a very happy sort of theme for those, uh, those Israelites. 
David, the psalmist, uses those, however, as a means of, as as a foil, so to speak, as creating a background so that when he talks about the refuge of God, as the psalmist puts it, that will stand out so much more brightly. The dominant motif of this psalm is that of wisdom. It's a pinch of prophetic voice that's thrown into the mix as well, which is why a lot of scholars will look at it and say, well, it could be a lament, but we lean towards orientation because the psalmist is teaching his people about what they need to do. And that's actually what leads us into our final peculiarity about this psalm, or our next one, I should say. Have you ever noticed that when you read the psalms, most of the psalms are not God's voice to humans, but human beings' voice to God? They are people voicing something to God. It could be lament, it could be praise. But there's something different about this psalm. It's not God's voice to humans. It's not human's voice to God. It's actually the psalmist, David's voice to other believers, to other people of God. Have you noticed that about Psalm 14? It's a little peculiar and unique in that regard. It's a psalm of instruction. It's a psalm of reminder. And often we need reminding, don't we, of our orientation? We need reminding of who we are and how secure we are with God. And as we're gonna see, David actually uses that. He assumes the role of a wise instructor who making a contrast with wisdom, the wise person, and those who are the fool. He's going to teach his fellow people of God to think, do, feel, and believe in a particular way. He's gonna position them or reposition them as the case may be reorient them to God's reality and to God's ways. Finally, this psalm exhibits a hint of Jewish apocalypticism. Now, that's 75-cent words, right? So let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. If you get that reference to Princess Bride, John Osborne will pay you $25 after the service. He doesn't know that yet, but there it is. Basically, this is the view of the world that points out how things are, in fact, how bad things are things are. It's a view kind of looking out and looking around and saying, wow, it's really dark out there. It's a view that says those who are not supposed to be winning are winning. Those who are not supposed to be blessed are being blessed, and what's worse is they're being blessed, (laughs) they're being blessed at the expense of the people of God. They appear to be the only ones who are getting what God has promised, but God's people are not getting it. But that's just half the story. This particular worldview then goes on to say, but, but, a day is coming when the Lord is going to break into history and he's going to take all of that that is bad and he's gonna get rid of it. He's gonna take what seems upside down and he's gonna write it. When we study this in the New Testament, we often talk about this as a reversal theme. When we get into the Gospel of Luke soon, you'll probably hear more language like that. It's where the first become the last, and the last become the first. In this psalm, it's where those who feed on the people of God and who carry them into exile are going to be removed by God, and they will become part of, they'll be returned home and become part of the circle of the righteous. That's what we see in this text. Now, with those things in mind, I think we're ready to jump into our text, and I think we'll see two 
messages, two lessons that come from this text. And I want to give them to you up front so in case you fall asleep, you'll have them, okay? It's okay if you need a nap, Tim Giddens. <laughs> I love you, Timmy. I love you, man. Lesson number one you're going to see. Fools. Starts out a negative lesson. Fools. Make decisions and fools act on the basis of incorrect assumptions about reality and about truth. They look around their world and they think they got it. They think they've got it figured out, but they're not listening to what God has to say about what's going on in the world and what is real and what is true. And as a result, they end up outside of the circle of the righteous. The second lesson that we're gonna get from this text is that those who are wise are the ones who seek God. They're the ones who desire that Yahweh will be the one to define and to constrain, put boundaries on what is real and what is true. These are the ones who reside or will reside in the circle of, of the righteous. And despite any evidence to the contrary, they're the ones that are safe in the refuge of God. All right, let's read the text. You can follow along as I read. My version may be a little bit different than yours, but we'll, we'll do what we can. To the director, according to David, a fool says in his heart, he says in his own mind to himself, there is no God. Fools cause ruin. Fools engage in shameless activity. No one is a doer of good. Yahweh looks down upon human society to see if anyone is sensible, to see if anyone is seeking God. Everyone has turned away from God, and at the same time, they've become corrupt. No one is a doer of good, not even one. All of those who make trouble by eating my people like bread, they do not understand, do they? They don't call upon Yahweh. There they tremble with fear, for God is in the circle of the righteous. You would shame the counsel of the poor person, but Yahweh is his refuge. Who from Zion is going to bring about Israel's rescue? When Yahweh returns the captives, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. The word of the Lord. The psalm opens with a bold, forceful statement of what is the defining characteristic of a fool. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, we need to be careful about how we read this and interpret this so that we don't anachronistically read our sort of understanding of atheism and whatever else back into this text. You see, contrary to what a lot of people think when they read this psalm, pay attention, the psalmist does not intend to say here that anyone who does not believe in the ontological existence of God is a fool. That's not the point of this psalm. In fact, the psalmist assumes that God exists. So now he's going to say something about the fool. This statement is not a way of categorizing negatively or classing or defining people who don't believe that God exists. It's a description of the mindset it's a description of the resulting way of life of those who don't believe that God is near or that think that God doesn't have anything to say about what they should do with their lives. And so they go on about their own business, making their own way. This is much more insidious. It's 
It's much more heinous. It's much more subversive than simply denying that God exists. As Old Testament scholar James Mays puts it, in the society that this psalm describes, the word naval, which is the word for fool, a naval, a fool, does not mean things like dumb or inept or silly or a clown or buffoon, things that we think of. Rather, this term designates a person who decides and who acts or behaves on the basis of wrong assumptions. And what's the wrong assumption in this text? God isn't here. God is absent. The, uh, the Jewish Publication Society has published an English translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Tanakh. And the way they gloss this is they say, God, a fool says in his heart, God doesn't care. Yeah, he created all of this stuff and he sort of wound it up and now he's left us to our own ways and our own devices to figure it out. That's what a fool says. One of my former professors put it this way in his commentary on the Psalms. He says, the fool, the naval, is neither ignorant nor an atheist in the way that we would think of atheism. The word fool is synonymous with wicked. It reflects the wisdom tradition where the fool aggressively and intentionally flouts his independence from God and his commandments. In his impudence, the fool disregards God's expectations. God is not important in his life. He shuts off the affairs of this world from divine intervention and denies any personal accountability to God for his actions, end quote. Thus the psalmist goes on to further characterize fools as those who have turned away from God, and as a result, they do not do good. A couple of times in this psalm, for, for the extra force, there is no doer of good. They don't understand, they do not call upon Yahweh, and they've become corrupt, or another way to gloss that word is they've become confused. The corrupt is in their way of thinking. They can't figure out which way is the right way to think. A couple of biblical texts come to mind when we think about the Naval. How many of you have read 1 Samuel 25 and know the story of, we usually pronounce his name Nabal, right? Nabal is actually the Hebrew word. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word, Naval, which means fool. How would you like it if your parents named you fool? Yeah, self-fulfilling prophecy, actually. So Nabal, or, or Nabal, has, uh, he's, he's called in his text, he's called a wealthy man, a rich man, he's powerful. He has a, he has a, a vast amount of sheep. He's a, he has got quite a shepherd, uh, a role of shepherds with him, and they're out shearing sheep one day. And David, this is after Samuel had died, and David and his men had gone down into the wilderness of Paran, and as it works out, they need some sustenance. They need some help. They hear the, the shepherds out working the sheep, and so they get together, they help, they actually are, are very kind to the shepherds, and they treat them honorably. David puts together a contingent of men to send, I think it's about 10 of them, and he sends them to Naval, sends them to Nabal. And they come in and they say, hey, we have really uh, worked hard to honor your shepherds. We haven't stolen anything from you. We've actually protected your land. We've protected your sheep. We've protected your people. Would you be so kind as to return that favor, that grace, that honor, with honor? And, and help us out with as much goods as you can, can give us. Because we need some food. We need some fill in the blank. You know what Naval's, or Naval's response was? Who's David? 
He's the anointed one of God. Who's the son of Jesse that I should care to give him my stuff? There are plenty of runaway slaves going around now, and this guy's probably just one of them. So basically, Naval, the fool, actually responds to the grace and the honor of David, not with honor and not with grace, but with insult. This makes its way back to David. David says, strap on the swords, boys. There will not be a single male left in the household of Nabal by the time evening falls. Abigail, who was married to this fool, realizes that he has done something that has jeopardized the honor of the family, and she has to protect it. Nabal gets drunk, falls asleep. She gathers the food, she gathers the clothing, she gathers the goods that David needs, goes out, finds him, and says, forgive me for crossing a boundary if I'm doing what women should not be doing, but my husband is a boorish man. That's another way of saying he's a fool. She gives him the things and asks for grace and mercy on the household of Nabal. David says, okay, thank you. They're sustained. They have their, their items. Abigail goes home. Naval uh, wakes up. She tells him exactly what went down, exactly how it went down. And the text says, he just dropped like a stone. Because suddenly he realized that what he had done was acted and played the role of fool. And it goes on to say that 10 days later, he died. And David's response to that was, God has sought vengeance and gotten it. I didn't have to do it. The fool, things do not end well for the fool. They end up outside of the circle of the righteous. I also think of New Testament texts like 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. We don't preach a lot on 2 Peter, which is a shame, right? Or Jude. These are hard letters to read, right? But 2 Peter is written to a group of people that are under a tremendous amount of pressure. Peter writes to them, he says, look, you need to understand and know this, that in the last days, scoffers are going to come, mockers are going to come, and they're gonna make fun of you. They're gonna mock you. They're gonna scoff at this. They're going to, quote, follow their own desires. And they're gonna start asking you, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. God isn't here. God doesn't care. He goes on to say that these same people ignore or intentionally or deliberately forget, as the NIV says, what the scriptures say about God. That he's patient, doesn't want anyone to, to, to perish, but all to come to repentance. But also that he's holy. And that when he comes back in and breaks into history again, judgment will happen. So here's the basic problem that we see in both of these illustrations of the fool, both the character and the characterization. When people stop seeking God, when they stop calling on the name of Yahweh, they open the door for all sorts of other voices to come in and to redefine reality and truth for them. To tell them what's true, to tell them what's right, who they should be, who they shouldn't be, how they should act, how they shouldn't act. And as people slowly begin to believe these other voices and values and ideologies, they become dominated by them. They actually become enslaved by them, owned 
by them. And then when this happens, they end up jeopardizing their place in the household of God, or as what the psalmist calls it, as we've said several times, the circle of the righteous. This is exactly what the apostle Paul warns the Colossians about when he says to them in chapter two, verse eight, watch out. Watch out lest someone becomes your captor. Lest someone takes you uh, as captives through philosophy and empty deception that's in accordance with the traditions of humans and in accordance with the basic teachings or principles of the world and not in accordance with Christ. So as I mentioned, the psalm leaps off with kind of a negative lesson. Fools make decisions and act on the basis of incorrect understandings and assumptions about reality and about what's truth. And these assumptions themselves are often based on their own desires. And as a result, they end up outside the circle of the righteous. In short, don't be fools. That's the negative lesson. But there's a positive lesson in this psalm as well. The psalmist moves on to remind the people of God of what truly is real. He says that wise people, people with understanding, with insight, they're the ones who seek God. They're the ones who want God to define and to constrain their reality rather than some other outside voice. At verse four, the psalmist, taking up a prophetic voice and offering a little bit of social analysis, depicts a reality of that potentially would rattle the foundations, I think, of just about any follower of God. He says God's people are, quote, being eaten like a loaf of bread, end quote, by those that are fools, people who might have money and power and look like they have it all together, but they're not living uh, by the direction of God. They're people who do not, do not call upon God. This would likely cause some of those hearers and readers a little bit of distress, to wonder if maybe the apple cart, as I said earlier, wasn't just obliterated and everything turned into applesauce. But the psalmist doesn't leave them there. He uses that dark blot as a background against which he could provide a truly orienting picture of reality. For this seems to be what he wanted to do as the wise instructor. The Lord is the refuge of his people. He is the one who, despite being lowly and poor and despite the suffering at the hands of the shameless fools who have aligned themselves with the popular opinion of the world, he takes those poor and lowly and he counts them as wise and he numbers them among the circle of the righteous. This is where the apocalyptic worldview shows up a little bit, again from my former professor. On the one hand, the fools, the evildoers, have ignored Yahweh and they do not seem to care that he's looking down from on high. They busily pursue their self-interests and in so doing devour God's people. Their seeming hatred of righteousness and the vulnerability of the righteous combine to make them easy prey. The appetite of the godless is insatiable. They devour the possessions of others and add them to their own, completely disregarding the rights of their subjects. The people of Isaiah's day likewise had no knowledge of God's judgment to come. They ate and they satisfied their appetites for a moment, but they did not return to the Lord. They expressed no remorse. They had no recognition of his judgment and no request for mercy. But on the other hand, suddenly, God's judgment's going to break in on the wicked. 
the power and the terrorizing of the wicked will come to an abrupt end when the Lord intervenes on behalf of his people who are in the company of the circle of righteous. Then dread will overtake the fools while the righteous enjoy the presence of their covenant God. Yes, the Lord is with his own. You hear it? You hear the security? The Lord is with his own. Even when it seems that he's far away, even when it seems he's not near their persecution, God truly is the refuge of his children. Amen. Further, in verse 7, this verse emphasizes the point that God is going to redeem his people, and he does it with, the psalmist does this with some rhetorical flair. This is, I get excited about languagey stuff. The psalmist asks an open question. I've got a communications prof down here who owes you all $25, by the way, so I'm a little nervous about this. But he asks an open question. When you ask an open question, even just for a moment in the text, what that does is it opens up some space for answering it with a number of different possibilities. So who is it that is going to come, who is it from Zion that is going to bring about God's rescue? Who is going to bring this redemption? Will it be the fools that think they're all that? And a bag of chips. Now, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Will it be the wise, the persecuted, the righteous ones themselves to do it? That might, might make a little bit more sense, but that's not the right answer either. The psalmist says, when Yahweh returns the exiles, when Yahweh himself brings the people home, he will be restoring everything to what it should be. He will restore praise and gladness among Jacob and among Israel. Here is the strong sense of security, of orientation. Remember I said earlier about psalms of orientation? They're often psalms of wisdom. We've seen the wisdom piece here in combating the foolishness. We also said that there's psalms sometimes of retribution where God takes care of business. That's what we have here in verse seven. God is taking care of business. He is doing this for his people. He is the one who is bringing the exiles home. We might say colloquially, God has got this, right? God has got this. And this is the resounding claim of secure orientation. And the second lesson of the psalm that those who seek Yahweh and who leave it to him to define what is real and to define what is true, those are the ones who are wise and those are the ones who will be safe in the refuge of God. So, what does all of this mean to us? I mean, we need to land this a little bit, I think, in our lives and in our church life. What does this mean for us today? Friends, we are bombarded at every moment of every day by multifarious voices and value positions and ideologies. I mean, you know this. This is reality, right? I'm reminded of uh, a story from my friend Josh, who, uh, Josh Bailey, who works at the Graduate School of Theology with me, and he, he often helps international students when they come to campus. And he was helping a, a guy named Jean who came with his family, uh, a wife and two young children, and he recounts the time he took them to the grocery store for the first time and they encountered what you see on the screen. Here they are just at first overwhelmed by the sheer number of choices that they're confronted with. 
And I use the language confronted with on purpose. And so they're staring at this, and they're not knowing what's the difference between Crave and Cocoa Puffs. I, I don't know, right? This is how it is for us with the, the many voices that are pounding on us every day. We, we come into, the, into life, and we, we, we have all of these things that are saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. And some of these look pretty doggone good. Crave looks really good to me, right? At first, we might look at these cereal boxes and say, well, let's see which one will actually be good for me. Which one of these might actually be healthy? But soon, we start looking at the others and we go, you know, Fruit Loops, that's looking pretty good. Maybe I'll try that. And we sort of innocently enough try it, and pretty soon we're hooked on Fruit Loops, and then we go to Fruity Pebbles, and then we start getting the little cereals with marshmallows in there that are just basically made of Red 40, all right? (laughs) Red 40 is a curse word in our house, by the way. Listen, this is our world, isn't it? Bombarded by alternate voices and value positions. You know, last week I had the honor of teaching at the Theology Summer Academy. This is a a, a theology academy at OC that's for high school students. And it was a really interesting uh, time. We actually studied emotions in the Bible and biblical theology. We spent a lot of time in the Psalms. And we went through uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And it was interesting for me to follow their conversations and to listen to their feedback throughout the course of the week. And by the end of the week, here's what I learned. The many voices that, that... pound on them through social media and through traditional media, to them, those voices are a whole lot louder than the voice of God. That sort of struck me, right? That struck me because as a teacher of God's word, that means that maybe I need to speak up a little bit. Those are the the voices that are confusing them. They're causing confusion, causing disorientation. So many of those voices are the cause of anxiety and depression. So many of those voices are the cause of identity confusion. So many of those voices cause, as, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, 18 to 32, they cause the darkening of people's minds. And this results in several ki- kinds of exchanges. Exchange of the truth of God for a lie the exchange of proper worship and proper views of the body and of sexual passions and replacing them, exchanging them for improper and unnatural. Those are the voices that cause confusion. We need to change that. We need to think for ourselves as a church and as individuals, we need to think more critically and in a gospel-informed way, in a God-directed and oriented way about the voices to which we're listening and that which, to which we're giving credence. And I wonder sometimes, and I've lumped myself in this too, I wonder sometimes if I am able to discern the voice of God over all of the other voices that I'm bombarded with. It is hard. Last week, Dr. Alden Bass, as part of the TSA, Theology Summer Academy, not the airport TSA, that's very different. Dr. Alden Bass, who actually has uh, preached for us before when we were down with uh, Northside, he was asked to organize the worship experience, experiences for the students during the week. And we had an opening worship time at uh, Dr. Rix's house. All of the students gathered together. We ate a meal together, fellowship together, and then we had a, a worship time. And as part of that opening session, he included this confession, and I want to read this to you, and then I'll close. 
And I think it's a, a, a good way for us to close this kind of a discussion. Lord God, creator of the stars of heaven, you have crowned Jesus as Messiah and Lord of all. We confess that we have not given full allegiance to him and we are slow to acknowledge his rule. We have trusted in the things of this world far more than in you. We've put security in money. We've put hope in politicians. And we spend more time following celebrities than Jesus. In your mercy, O oh God, forgive us. And by your spirit, empower us to follow him more and more faithfully so that your kingdom may come and that your will be done here as it is 